detecting a protowarp signature again. That makes three times now, Admiral. Two times is a coincidence. Three is a pattern. Finally, it's back on the grid. It's time we rescue our missing ship and get some answers. Take us to the last protostar signature. Maximum warp. I'm coming, Chakotay. complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith and joining me on the CG animated bridge. This is Tyler Orton and I'm coming Chakotay. You still, I was going to announce that one as well, because that is an amazing line from Captain Janeway, or Hall of Janeway, I should say. How dare you, Cam? That was from Admiral Janeway. Oh, that's uh, right, the, that's right. On the USS Dauntless, look, we are covering a Moral Star Parts 1 and 2, kind of the uh, the, the third or fourth mid-season um, finale that we've had so far <laughs> with uh, Star Trek Prodigy. Let's not worry... <laughs> Yes, let's not bury the lead here, though. It's like we have the return of uh, Admiral Janeway, like as we last saw her in Star Trek Nemesis. So, um, I, I okay, so I, I I was absolutely delighted to see her once again when I heard that voice going uh, once more. You know, we're used to it on Star Trek Prodigy, but to actually like hear it coming from somebody that I knew was kind of flesh and blood Janeway, that was just lit me up. I, I, I was so down for that. And I don't know, I like... I, I, I want to dig into a little bit of like kind of the continuity going on and all that. But Cam, what's your first reaction after uh, getting that, that, that dose of Janeway after so many years? It's interesting how Kate Mulgrew really does find a difference between the two voices. Like, Hall of Janeway does not sound the same. So, you know, props to her. A lot of actors who we really like, when you put them in front of a microphone to do voice acting, they come across as kind of flat. Like, when you look, watch all these, like, DreamWorks movies where they're like, we have movie stars doing the voices. It's like... Eh, get a voice actor. They're much more dynamic on, you know, on the mic. But uh, Kate Mulgrew has it. Like, there's a definite dynamic difference in those two voices. And I was really psyched to see this. Um, I never thought I'd hear, I'm coming, check out, hey, you know, on, you know, the screen again. But also, like, this felt, you know, you've referred to it as, like, the third or fourth, you know, <laughs> season hiatus finale or whatever you want to call yeah. it. But it felt like kind of a perfect season finale like i kind of wish they just left it at 10 episodes and whatever take a bit of a gap and season two could start new because this definitely felt like a really solid way to resolve kind of your first chunk of episodes so like i you know me i like getting into the minutiae just a little bit but i i looked at her uniform i uh looked at screen grabs of it and i compared it to what we saw in star trek picard and i bring this up because we were kind of debating like the actual like time period that this takes place in and based on the com badges, um, this takes place after the Star Trek Picard flashbacks in which uh, Picard hands in his resignation. But it and it takes place a little bit closer to, I guess, modern like Star Trek Picard era. So um, the uniforms are different than the ones that we see in Star Trek Picard. So I'm guessing this one is actually taking place a little bit later on than what the press material had indicated. And I think that lines up with um, a lot of confusion that maybe we had about 
the Diviner chasing after the Protostar for 17 years or so, especially if Chicote is the captain. But with uh, the, the Protostar now under the care of all these, like, former enslaved miners, um, <laughs> how, like, Chicote's been away from the ship for quite some time. I don't know what's really to make of his future here. Is he stuck on some planets, like, living in the jungle? Or, like, I don't know where she's off to. Like, I think Admiral Janeway might be disappointed to uh, see who is commanding the uh, the USS Protostar as of now. Chakotay's back on the basics planet. <laughs> Giant like... worms are chasing after him. He's like, not again. <laughs> Yeah, I'm interested to see if it is, like, a stranded situation or if it's just, like, Chakotay lost that ship. Maybe there's, like, a bit of disgrace because of losing that ship, so he's serving on a lesser vessel right now and wants to redeem himself. What I think will be really interesting from a storytelling perspective is, as you said, the Protostar, this state-of-the-art starship, is being <laughs> run by a team of miners, both age-wise and yes. by occupation. Thank you, thank you. And, um... <laughs> How does the show justify them meeting up with Starfleet again, having this ship, and continuing on with a series where this crew we've gotten to learn over the past handful of episodes still gets to have the protostar, and Chakotay somehow is okay with this? Okay, I, I figured it out in two words, you know. Uh, it goes a little something like this. Red Squad, Red Squad, Red <laughs> Squad. You know, we had the USS Valiant uh, caught behind enemy lines, and so an entire ship full of cadets commandeered that vessel and uh, took it over there. So maybe something similar, but I agree with you. Like, it's a little tricky if Janeway is going in search of Chakotay, uh, expecting him to be in command, and Chakotay is long gone. Um, I, I'm guessing at the hands of the Diviner. I don't know exactly. I, I really doubt Chakotay's dead. But it's going to be weird, and so maybe the USS Dauntless, which is Janeway's new ship, uh, which, shout out to the episode Hope and Fear, that uh, season four finale from Star Trek Voyager, which, of course, the Dauntless was an alien vessel disguised as a Starfleet vessel, so it's a curious Voyager shout out with the name of that. So I I don't know how she's going to react, because my my assumption is, like, the Dauntless will encounter the Protostar at some point, and... I, again, how does she react to these non-Starfleet people operating the ship? I, I, I it, It'll frustrate me if it's not dealt with in a good way. But the thing is, we're wondering about like how Brad Boimler goes back to the USS uh, Cerritos. And it actually, hmm. they did it in an incredibly clever way by having a transporter clone um, <laughs> remain on the Titan while uh, uh, Brad Boimler... Uh, went back to uh, the Cerritos. So I don't know. Hopefully they can be creative with this. Because it doesn't feel like there's any way within the concept of the show that they're offering us to, you know, have them meet up and have Chakotay play an active role on the Protostar going forward. Because that sort of removes the necessity of Hollow Janeway. And then also, like, a lot of the appeal is these kids who don't quite know what they're doing learning to pilot this vehicle like i don't know that it makes sense to have suddenly captain chakotay with the cast of uh, prodigy around him do you think we get to see chakotay in the flesh when we return from you know for episode 11 i guess at some tbd date i think so i i it makes they've teased it it makes a lot of sense and i would have to imagine they're going to want to do more i mean robert beltran 
I don't know that he would have necessarily turned down just a one-shot role at an episode of Prodigy. Like, why not do it? But I would have to imagine if you've got, you know, a pretty well-known legacy character from Voyager wanting to come back and being willing to do so, that you'd want to give him more to do just to excite him to be there. Because as we've seen in the past, if Robert Beltran doesn't want to be there, you're not going to get your best work out of him. True. Um, so uh, some other stuff to dive into, like I, I, I want to tackle the kind of the storytelling stuff, but some other minutia is we're introduced to two new Starfleet uniforms in this episode. Um, I'm, I'm honestly not the biggest fan of what looks to be Dr. Bashir's racquetball attire. <laughs> I kind of liked them, actually. I thought they were pretty slick looking. I know exactly what you're talking about. They look pretty dorky in um, live action on, you know, Citadel Alphadel <laughs> on DS9. But I actually kind of like this gray and white look that the crew were wearing. I thought it looked a lot better than when the Discovery crew tried to don grayish uniforms at the end of season three. Well, I think there's a reason why uh, they ditched those gray uniforms after exactly, what, uh, 45 seconds of screen time? That seems like a liberal amount of time. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Um, I, I have to say, we were also introduced to the Starfleet uniforms on the USS Dauntless. I, I'm just totally fine with the idea that every single starship or every single Star Trek series is going to have different uniforms. That doesn't bother me. But I, I would say that I like those USS Dauntless uniforms more than what we saw with the uh, Protostar crew. I feel like we're kind of spoiled. We don't live in an era where... Star Trek is, you know, revealing new uniforms to us, and they look like the uniforms from the motion picture. True. Or <laughs> the first season of TNG. Like, when are we going to get our shot at that? Like, the one where we all just are pulling out our hair going, what are they doing? I, I mean, I guess you could say the Discovery end of season three ones are the closest we've gotten, but they were more just bland as opposed to offensive. <laughs> Well, I, I will say that there's nothing better than getting to look at a, a short-sleeved William Shatner with all his hair going up his biceps, you know, like, uh, <laughs> that is perfection in uh, my books right there. But oh, so, Cam, if we look through the new series that have come on, and we've seen a, a big variety of uniforms introduced. Um, Discovery, we've had three, you know, kind of the original blue ones, and then we had those gray jammies in season three, and then we have kind of that updated look in season four. Lower Decks, you know, we have the Cerritos uniforms as well as the first contact ones, kind of going back and forth depending on the ship. And then Picard, we have kind of the current era that we saw one Riker donning, and then we also have the kind of the flashback uniforms when admiral picard handed in his resignation uh what would be kind of your your favorite among all of those ones that i i, I kind of just laid out there yeah um i i think i would find it very difficult to name say the picard ones as favorites because they feel like they're kind of riffing off an established template that i like which is the classic you know tng uniforms i don't like the collars the collars look awkward don't they yeah, like they aren't my favorite, but they're kind of evoking a past uniform. So I go, eh, I really do like those season one and two Discovery uniforms. Um, the blue, you know, the dark blue ones. They really felt like they were taking a swing. They were doing something that didn't look like what we'd seen in the past. I mean, I guess you could say a little bit like the Enterprise jumpsuits in some, you know, just in terms of color. But it felt like they were doing something kind of, you know, a radical reinvention of the uniform form. So... And I thought it worked. It didn't feel like, ooh, that just that just doesn't work. Um, I do also really like the lower decks uniforms. 
Uh, it was a trick question because the real answer is the 1701 uniforms that we got to see in season two of Star Trek Discovery. Those are pretty nice too. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's cool. Like if you're looking at the Strange New Worlds stuff, I, I didn't think it possible, but they actually, I, I think they've even improved the look of those 1701 uniforms. And I, I'm really excited to see the characters like really, you know, bouncing around in them in just a few months now. Yeah. Like I do feel like it's a pretty strong batch of uniforms. Like if you had to name the weakest of the new ones, which one would you say it is? I think it is the current era Star Trek Picard uniforms. It's just those collars look so unbelievably awkward to me. I, I just, I, I do not dig. Yeah, but they don't feel like particularly grating. It's just like, oh, that's a bit of a issue in terms of the design is those collars. But overall, in terms of a color scheme, they're they're pretty fine. Yeah, it's interesting because the gray ones from Discovery Season 3, they worked well at Starfleet Headquarters. Mm-hmm. And that is very much kind of that white, you know, uh, set design. And they can contrast with that set design, which is very sterile looking. But when you get onto the kind of grayish ship that is Star Trek Discovery, though, th- there's no contrasting with those kind of gray on gray. And so it just looks like very like, eh, you know, and that's kind of why I describe them as jammies to a certain degree. Well, it makes you wonder how, for example, the Wrath of Khan, you know, the red outfits would look on the crew of um, DS9 in those, like, very red hallways. Like, colors are important, people. You want contrast. Yeah. Just look at Star Trek The Motion Picture for uh, the, the color schemes that they had there. <laughs> we, 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 didn't, we had, like, what, like, um, flesh tone, like, for some of them? like, beige. Um, yeah, and sort of a grayish blue i guess uh weird choices well nothing's weirder than the fact that they gave security officers cod pieces back in uh <laughs> the original series era films so yeah <laughs> uh, so, okay more broadly though okay this episode we've kind of been at, at uh, hovering around the periphery of what's going on here but it's essentially it's we've been debating this like is the diviner going to be this ongoing villain who's going to be hunting them, you know, just like in uh, Inspector Gadget and uh, Dr. Claw there? Or is there going to be some sort of resolution? And I feel that they've set us up for him being kind of trapped on this planet, uh, his home planet, on his own after being struck by Zero's Medusan sort of energy wave. And I I, I wonder if there's opportunities to revisit him uh, coming forward. I, I don't think he's going to be the same sort of antagonist that we've experienced over the last 10 episodes. If this is kind of where his antagonism arc ends, I'm totally satisfied with that. And and I think this one actually brings up a lot of interesting questions about why he would have issues against Starfleet. But overall, what do you think about their way of at least seemingly wrapping up this Diviner arc? I was so satisfied when I saw Dreadnought get decapitated. And I'm not anti-Dreadnought because it's a cool design. But I was like, oh... Like, are we going to have some maybe finality to this? This is really exciting to me. And then to have the Diviner hit with the Medusan, you know, beams there, which I thought was an incredibly effective sequence. And we've had the setup from, I think it was the first episode, maybe second episode, I can't remember which, where they showed, um, you know, what Zero's powers were and what Medusans could do if you gaze into, you know, the the colors and the light that come out of them. Um, to have the payoff to that, I thought was really satisfying and basically left him kind of like a Gollum figure at the end or maybe Dukat in the caves in Waltz kind of thing. So I was very happy that we could leave that sort of thread behind because it did feel a little Star Wars-y. I think the show did a good job 
past the initial, you know, first couple episodes of moving away from a Star Wars y vibe. But the Diviner character felt like a Star Wars villain, the kind of thing you would see on like Rebels or something. So I'm much more interested in them moving forward with the story where they're going and maybe meeting up with Starfleet, going on new adventures, but maybe have the Diviner there in their back pocket. If there's a story where they could incorporate him in a way that was interesting, because he's not powerful, he's lost pretty much everything he has. So like, if you have to bring him back, maybe it's for an interesting purpose, like a Gollum figure. That could be genuinely cool to see. What did you think of Dark Hollow Janeway? Fantastic. <laughs> that design, the reveal of Dark Hollow Janeway, it, it reminded me of the um, Living Witness yeah. version That's of uh, the Voyager. Yeah. And first off, incredible design. Loved it. I loved every moment she had of being kind of the badass hologram. But I did love the reversal of this was all a ruse and uh, they'd... Um, programmed her to not be able to be controlled by anyone other than Starfleet. Yeah. The the one thing that I, I issue that I had with at least part one of this episode is I knew the whole time that they weren't just giving the ship away. Like that would essentially like yeah. defeat the entire conceit of the series. And so it, it's one of those things like I, I, I realize this is for children audiences, but for me as uh, a man in his uh, late thirties at this point, I, I kind of knew that we were just in for a switcheroo. So that kind of cut some of the tension for me. But if we jump forward to the next episode and it, it, it it's, I think it took a little bit too long to establish what the diviner's real motivation was and his hate uh, behind Starfleet. But I was, I was satisfied with it where Starfleet encounters a planet and half the planet uh, wants to, you know, pursue kind of uh, these Federation ideals, and the other half doesn't. So it devolves into civil war, and I think that's an interesting idea that we haven't really explored in Star Trek. Uh, we did have that episode. I think it was uh, attachment with uh, uh, Crusher and Picard. They're on that planet, and they've got those like uh, kind of implants inside their heads. They can't step too far apart from each other. But the tension there is, is um, the Federation is willing to think about letting like 75% of a planet's population enter into the Federation. And there's a lot of tension between the other 25%, uh, you know, maybe like a, an entire continent of this planet. I, I kind of, it seems that there's a lot of drama to mine, you know, for, for that kind of conceit as well. To mine, you say? I, indeed. <laughs> On a show that knows it's mining. Yeah, it was actually... Um, a motivation for a villain that I really didn't see coming in a children's Star Trek show when, you know, this sort of thing was announced. It felt like it was a pretty sophisticated concept and something I think that adults would genuinely get something out of. Like, I do think, like, honestly, if the Star Trek shows on the air, Prodigy is one I think adults should be paying attention to if they're not watching it because they kind of dismissed it as you know just kids programming i genuinely think there's a lot to enjoy here and you're right like maybe the diviner that should have been set up earlier so it wasn't just like a basically we had what like 15 minutes to sit sit with this before we had a resolution it seems at least temporarily to this character but it was compelling for sure and i'm interested to see how this affects the character of gwyn going forward at least well, the thing that I was curious about as it was unfolding is how much I empathized with her own conflict about, you know, trying to reignite this relationship with her father, despite the fact that the guy was willing to leave her behind, right? How much did you buy into what was going on? It worked for me, but sometimes when this sort of stuff is showcased 
on TV series or movies. I, I have a tough time buying this, but I think this was done well, just in my own opinion. No, I bought it. Um, I thought they did a good job of establishing Gwyn's conflict between the two, but not making it crazy yeah. that she would make the decisions she did. Because there's like lots of movies that you or TV shows that you just want to like bang your head off a desk or something when characters are making really stupid decisions. But like Gwyn really doesn't have that many reasons to not trust him up until recently where he was going to abandon her. Like her entire life, it seems like she was kind of on the same page with him. So I can completely buy that she would be like, okay, I want to hear his motivations and his reasoning for this before settling on what she exactly wants to do. Well, the other thing that this really worked for me was the fact that they were kind of saying goodbye to Gwyn during that, that switcheroo. Mm -hmm. And I, I've often confused discovery of not really earning those emotional beats that they're constantly striving for. Whereas this felt totally earned to me where these are a group of characters that we've only known for nine 22 minute episodes. And this worked better than anything I saw with, you know, Burnham crying for about the 40th time in any given season. I felt like almost an idiot because I'm watching part one of A Moral Star and I'm watching this farewell and I'm to it's totally working for me on an emotional level even though I know this is going to be a very short-lived uh, show if um, the next episode is like, <laughs> well, oh well, we lost the protostar, Gwyn's gone with the diviner, um, back to the mines, people. <laughs> yeah. I, I just, I, I find this show, like, it's, it, it's so successful at what I think they're trying to accomplish here. And I think, uh, you kind of get an idea about what Star Trek Picard was trying to accomplish, and I don't think they were successful at reaching that. And it seems like every season we kind of get an inkling about what Discovery is trying to accomplish, and, and it utterly fails when we end up with radioactive man boys as the big emotional clincher of a season, you know? And so I, I, I think both, both Lower Decks and prodigy have kind of proven themselves quite adept at achieving what they set up to do i think a part of it at least is that when you look at both shows the people running them understand their medium um you look at you know the guys who are running prodigy like they work in animation aimed at children so they know how to convey what star trek is to children and do it you know at a pretty strong level whereas when you look at some of these shows like discovery or picard it's kind of people who are outsiders who don't really know Star Trek storytelling coming in and being like, okay, we're just going to do a week-to-week -week series. Like, Akiva Goldsman has done a lot of film writing, um, but, like, he's never run a, you know, week, uh, you know, an ongoing science fiction TV show, and yet he has, like, a lot of reign over Picard, and we're seeing that that show's kind of bumpy, whereas the people doing Lower Decks and Prodigy, they know what to do. They know how to do this stuff. Well, he kept saying, like, the worst thing ever during interviews for season one, where he's like, we're making a 10-hour-long movie. And I'm like, yeah, but you're operating within an entirely different medium. That's like me yeah. putting on, like, a vinyl record, and the artist is saying, I'm making a 10-hour-long movie. <laughs> like, okay, so then what am I listening <laughs> to here? Like, it, it, it's different storytelling that, that works from one medium to the other. And with Picard I, and Discovery, I, I think... It's very obvious they have each suffered from just way too many cooks in the kitchen. And maybe a, a lot of people maybe uh, stepping on each other's toes or being unwilling to somebody take more of that kind of 
um, auteur sort of command uh, of a series that I, I think we see in like the really well done television series, they are kind of auteur driven. You know, you think of the uh, Sopranos or the Mad Men or the Deadwoods of the world, and and that's what we get there. Whereas this Watch Out one, it just seems with the live action Star Trek shows as of late, it, it's they seem so fractured in, in what they're trying to accomplish week to week. Yeah, they really do. And I mean, you know, Prodigy is a good comparison for the live actions and that it's serialized. And it's interesting how I can watch a moral star part one. And I feel satisfied at the end of the episode, even though it's a cliffhanger. Like I'm like, I want to watch the next one. I genuinely am excited to see where it's going to go. But I feel like I'm satisfied with that 22 minutes of storytelling. Whereas I've often felt like um, with Picard and uh, later discovery where they're all just basically hinging on the next episode, but I'm not, like, really excited to watch the next episode. Well, like, remember when uh, Dr. Girardi was revealed to, like, be a murderer? And that was the cliffhanger? And you're like, okay, I don't really care. It's like... Yeah. It's just frustrating more than anything else. Yeah, and it feels like they're telling kind of mediocre stories, but trying to hook you with... Well, you've got to see what happens next. And that's become a very popular model. Not the mediocre storytelling part, but the every episode has to hook you for what's going to come next. But, like, I think Prodigy is doing a far better job at, within its, you know, 22-minute parameters, telling me a story that I'm genuinely engaged with and excited to watch. It doesn't feel like homework to watch the show. And I was worried early on that maybe Prodigy would feel like homework. Maybe I'd be tuning into a kid's show that, like, kind of feels like, okay... We watched basically Colorful Chaos for 22 minutes, and that's basically the gist of it. Yeah, I think they needed to settle into their rhythm after that two-part premiere, you mm -hmm. know? And I think they settled into their rhythm very quickly. I, I think quicker than, say, Lower Decks did. Um, both shows are, are consistently delivering episode-to-episode -episode adventures that I'm invested in while also having kind of ongoing storylines in which I, I don't get frustrated by some sort of mystery box storytelling that is being awkwardly inserted for arbitrary reasons. Yeah, and also the characters on Prodigy, I think, are just really getting across, like, emotional beats well. Like, I think Rock Talk is, like, the stealth weapon for, like, emotional moments that somehow really hit. And also that moment where um, Zero confronted the Diviner I genuinely felt something yeah. about what Zero had gone through and how he was going to have this moment of payback against the Diviner. I was like, wow, that moment genuinely had an impact on me versus <laughs> a Burnham uh, inside a gelatinous computer fighting <laughs> Osira. You know what I mean? Like, It's just like it's a payoff to two characters who we've seen in opposition to one another you know, basically having that big final you know, resolution to their relationship and it really did work here. Well, the thing about the conclusion of the Diviner's arc, in which he's pretty much just, like, cut down. He's a shell of him for, of his former self. He doesn't accomplish his own goal, and he kind of has to suffer on his desolate homeworld. Whereas the end of Osiris' arc is Burnham shoots her in the chest, and she's dead. Yeah. And it's like, oh, we're, they were going in. They're, they're actually, uh, like pondering far more interesting things about Osiris, about like, is she going to have to face a trial? Would she be imprisoned? Uh, that seemed very interesting to me if they went down that path. But instead, no, fa phaser shot, you know, close range, she's dead. 
I'm just like, that's not interesting at all. Not dramatically. I mean, I guess the issue with Osiris was the character wasn't compelling enough to um, really dangle an extended uh, ongoing story with that character, but that's more the execution. That shouldn't be the case. I think if you have an interesting villain, you can totally hinge upcoming storylines on them. And I do think the Diviner, now that we're away from kind of that Palpatine, Darth Vader-ish kind of stuff, and we have this very broken character, there really could be some interesting stories to tell about that character. Maybe, you know, Star Trek's all about optimism. Maybe there is a way to redeem that character in the future, like a way to take this kind of shattered soul and find something interesting going forward. Or maybe he starts his own Bajoran Pa-Wraith cult cam. Who knows? <laughs> you know what? If they do that, I'll also give them props for that. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, one of the other things I really, really liked about uh, this two-parter here is uh, we have the creation of these ankle monitoring bracelets. Like They, they turn them into universal translators. And all these people that could not communicate with each other, they suddenly have the opportunity to do so. And that, that is just so core to the tenet of Star Trek, where it's about people reaching each other and trying to come to understand each other in ways that would otherwise be quite challenging. And like that, it just tells me that they, the, the creators behind the show really do get what Star Trek's about. And they genuinely got some laughs out of it, too, with those two miners who are just, like, suddenly, like, all giddy talking to one another. Like, that was a genuinely funny moment. Well, I, I, I think I wrote down the quote here, and he's like, I've been holding these thoughts and feelings for so long. And he's just like... <laughs> yeah, so, like, they, again, are able to delve into a moment like that, you know, underscore the emotional truth of it, but also get a good laugh. I mean, good writing. Um, so for a long time, I've kind of been wondering why is this show called Star Trek Prodigy? Um, we have a character constantly referenced to as, as progeny. Yeah. We have the USS Proto, or you know, the the NXO blah 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 uh, Protostar. Um, but why Prodigy? I, I guess you know, Hollow Janeway really had to spell it out there at the end, but it took ten episodes, right? Like you're all prodigies in my book. <laughs> a prodigy in the making. <laughs> so. Um, sure. Yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Cam, uh, any final thoughts before we jump into the rest of the podcast? We're going to be discussing some Star Trek news as well as uh, our weekly Boba Fett, aka The Mandalorian, now reviews. But uh, any any final thoughts on this one? Yes, I do, actually. This episode is, you know, the finale before a hiatus. And it did exactly what it's supposed to do. It left me excited to see this show come back after a hiatus. That is not something Discovery succeeded at. So props to Prodigy. Meanwhile, next week, Cam, we'll find out for sure. <laughs> what? Wait, wait, hold on. What happened at the end of uh, Discovery before the hiatus? I'm trying to remember. Oh, uh, well, you recall that Book dropped uh, this makeshift jump drive into his gelatinous computer oh, terminal. And he and back. Tarka, they took off yeah. to go do a preemptive strike against the uh, DMA. Right, that's right. It's all coming back. It's all yeah. flooding back, people. I, I did appreciate at least that episode. They were dealing with a lot of like debates. They were having mm -hmm. debates again. So, you know, the show is just all over the place in season four. You know, so yeah, that that wasn't a bad episode. It's just that, like, in terms of like hooking me to come back after hiatus, Prodigy did it far better. I a hundred percent agree with you there. 
Um, so, Kim, uh, why don't we run through a little bit of uh, Star Trek news that's going on right now. Uh, why don't we kick it off with this? We have a deadline reporting that uh, there is a Starfleet Academy in development. They are working on it. We have uh, Gaia Viola is working on what uh, Deadline calls a take for the project. So, <laughs> okay, but I, I recall like that press release went out like four years ago, Kim. They had like the the creator of the OC he had already developed like some sort of pitch or maybe even like story script or what have you. Um, it, it's bizarre to me that four years on, we the, the, the only place that we're at right now is like somebody's developing another pitch for it. And it seemed as if with Tilly's very awkward departure from the Discovery over to the Academy in season four, I, I thought that they were further along with developing this? I I don't know. What, what, what do you make of this recent Starfleet Academy news? I don't understand this news, really. Because it's like, if you say in that story, you know, Viola had a pitch that the execs loved and they are fast-tracking this series. I go, yeah, that sounds like a story. Saying that they're coming in with a takes tune and that the show is going to be fast-tracked is so strange. It's like, basically, like, we're going to assume this take is awesome. And it's all going to be, you know, <laughs> gravy going forward. What a weird story. And it kind of shows a, at least gives off a kind of a whiff of desperation to Paramount Plus and, you know, Kurtzman and company that like they are just desperate to make this show. Just desperate. Yeah. I Look, I, I think it could work. Okay. So, you know, the um, new showrunner for Star Trek card, uh, Terry Metalis. He's saying all the right things, you know, and uh, he had something kind of a, a way that he articulated his perception of what makes for Star Trek. And he characterized um, his vision of Star Trek being in the present day as the Picard era, you know, where as, you know, if we go back to Discovery Seasons 1 or 2, we're kind of seeing almost kind of a, a historical drama. And if we go to Discovery Seasons 3 4... Now we're taking, seeing something take place in Star Trek's future. I I buy into the idea that present-day Star Trek is where we are with Picard and company. And I wonder if an Academy would, like an Academy series, would work so much better in present-day Star Trek than what I think we were kind of getting at with, with the Discovery hints at an Academy series in which it's, people learning how to be Starfleet officers all over again because they've forgotten since the burn or something? Like, I I, I don't know. What's your take on maybe kind of a potential timeline or, or an ideal timeline uh, for an Academy show? I guess I'm torn because it's like, I would personally prefer an Academy show set during, whether it was TOS, TNG, or post that, you know, the Picard era. That just genuinely interests me more. Um because, like, the 32nd century feels so ill-defined at this point. But I think, like, dramatically, it kind of makes sense to be having a show built around cadets going through Starfleet Academy after it has just started up again. And it's sort of in this rebirth period. Like, I think that makes sense for pitching a show, if that is the pitch that's going to happen when Viola makes this pitch. But, um... So I guess I'm just really torn because I can understand the appeal of going with the Discovery timeline, but I think I am, you know, sitting next to a lot of other fans out there who 
when they think of Starfleet Academy, they think of more that sort of idyllic setting we've seen on, you know, TNG and Voyager and what have you. What do you think of uh, Terry Metalis's characterization of, you know, Star Trek Picard taking place in what he considers present day Star Trek? It is this particular time period, is that present day Star Trek to you? I think so. Yeah, that sounds about right to me. Yeah, I, I, I think that's kind of a smart thing. I, I don't know, I, just, I, I've been burnt before. I hope I don't get burnt by um, uh, Picard season two, but just based on the trailers and based on what uh, we're hearing from the uh, producers, they're saying all the right things, but that happened ahead of season one as well. So I don't know, fingers crossed at this point for me. Yeah, I mean, they're shaking it up for season two. So that at least promises something different. It's not the same people coming back where you go like, oh, I don't know that I can trust this team again. We definitely have a bit of a shakeup, so fingers crossed. But yeah, with like um, the uh, Starfleet Academy, like I don't know that it's something that's ever excited me. I understand why they want to do it. It's a great name for a show. Starfleet Academy is an element of the canon that I think is kind of rife for exploration. But it's not a show that whenever they pull this one out and announce it, that I go, oh, that sounds really cool. I kind of think I prefer seeing bits of it like I did in Star Trek 2009 or in the various episodes where they visited it. Yeah. Uh, speaking of things that maybe you're not fully energized about, um, uh, Deadline is also reporting that uh, yeah. uh, Nicole Clemens, president of Paramount Plus, uh, uh, original scripted series, is saying that uh, there will be news soon about the Section 31 proposed spinoff. That's, uh, I don't know, it kind of feels like a uh, hamster going around in its wheel, just kind of uh, in this ever-going or ongoing sort of stasis. Uh, the writers who developed the script for it, um, they're not with Star Trek anymore. So, uh, like, I don't know. Like, like, I don't know what there is to say about this show that nobody seems to want. I can... Get my head around the Starfleet Academy. You know, the name makes sense. It has brand value. Plus, they were looking at doing Starfleet Academy stories way back with Star Trek VI, you know, the alternate iteration of what that could have been. So, completely makes sense. This Section 31 show feels like an idea they tossed out to the public back in Season 2 Discovery. And it's like, no one was that excited. But they're like, well, we said it. We got to make it. We don't have any ideas, but we got to make it. And so people keep asking them from the press. I don't know why. The press should just not ask them about it at all. And it would probably just go away. But they keep being asked about it. And they're like, well, I mean, yeah, we got to do it because we said we would. But uh, we don't really, uh, I don't know, we don't have any ideas. So we're just going to keep saying we'll remain tight-lipped on that one, which is, I think, what Alex Kurtzman said about it. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. He also implied that there are other series under development, um, not related mm. to Section 31 or Starfleet Academy. So, you know, I my best guess is after Picard, I, it, doesn't it just make the most sense to just pursue some sort of Seven of Nine spinoff? I think so, because I don't know that there's many legacy characters now I would be looking at doing, you know, a spinoff show about um i think Worf is the only one that might catch their ears just because i know there's such a public adoration for Worf. but um i don't know that there's that many left unless they're going to go in a new direction and just do something completely different but i don't 
know if they'll do that until Discovery's gone. I like Worf. I don't know if I want to watch a Worf spinoff. Like, I, I'd much rather watch a Seven spinoff. I, I just think there's so much more to dive into with that character. She has so much more growth ahead of her. Uh, there's more layers as she, you know, seeks to become more and more human. I, I think the only way a Worf spinoff works is if it's like a really chilled, laid-back Worf who's there to kind of guide folks along that might be more mercurial you know like klingons you know and i think um like he offered up his own pitch when it became clear to him that paramount wasn't going to bite on it but essentially the klingons realized that for them to survive they're, they're going to have to change their society and they bring in Worf to kind of help them with that and I, I guess he captains a ship or something like that so it's not a bad idea i don't know i i just I, i'm far more intrigued by the idea of a, of a spin -off, seven spin-off versus a wharf spin-off yeah and seven just feels as you said like there's a character there who we don't know that much about what she's been up to other than the fenris rangers and i think it could be interesting just to track what her story is going forward when i think of like other shows and i know we've talked in the past about like what characters could support a spin-off but uh, when i'm thinking of like likelihood it's like, it feels like a lot of the TNG cast is going to be kind of covered by what's going on on Picard. Um, Voyager, you've got Seven on, you know, Picard and whether they decide to spin that character off is another story. But like, you've also got a lot of uh, Voyager coverage going on on Prodigy. So I don't know that those two shows feel like they'd be, you know, producing spinoffs other than, as you said, the potential Wharf, which always is kind of bubbling around. And I just don't know that I could see Paramount Plus getting behind a um, Enterprise or a um, DS9 spinoff. Yeah. Well, um, one spinoff that uh, I, I'm very excited for is Strange New Worlds. Uh, they have some new promotional art with uh, what appears, I can only guess, is Pike on a horse staring at uh, a, a poorly rendered CG version of the 1701. <laughs> um, you know, uh, but uh, I, I guess clips were aired to, or a uh, uh, a scene was screened for TV critics, and it's especially uh, focused on you know Uhura, Cadet Uhura, being tricked into wearing her dress uniform to a casual dinner. Um, that seems amusing to me. You know, I, I, I could get behind that. But um, b before I really watch, you know, a couple episodes of this series, I. I I, I want to like this show so much, but I, I'll still have to hold my reservations and just kind of understand what they're trying to do. And that worked with watching Prodigy as well. Like, it, it took me a, a couple episodes for me to figure out what they're going to do and then realize how successful they were at that. Yeah, I mean, they're saying all the right things so far with Strange New Worlds, but they were with Picard Season 1 as well. It's just the question of the execution, but... Um, I, you know, just reading some of the press reports about those, you know, that clip uh, about Uhura, and they were just talking about how, like, vibrant and colorful and fun the show felt, which is a very welcome thing for live-action Star Trek we haven't had, because both Picard and Discovery have kind of gone in a separate direction. So, like, I am all about optimism, and I do think that poster they released of, you know, Pike on the horse wearing the cowboy hat, it really does seem to me to kind of evoke what the roots of Star Trek are, which is sort of this Western approach to, you know, the great frontier and kind of bringing the, the wagon train to the stars approach of Star Trek back, which really excites me. I'm hoping that's what they're trying to get across with this, you know, art they're showing us as a concept for the show. And 
I just, I am so, so down for something more in the spirit of, you know, TNG and original series Star Trek, because it's kind of what I think we felt like we might get from Discovery when it started, but it's just clearly not been the aim of that show. Before we jump to our spoiler-filled review of The Mandalorian, oh wait, I mean <laughs> Book of Boba Fett, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, uh, uh, we'll talk about what we're going to do next week, which is, of course, a check-in on Star Trek Discovery. It's coming back from its own mid-season uh, hiatus there. And uh, Cam, I, I think we talked about where it last left off, and it'll be interesting to see where it's going from here. And of course, we'll be doing our uh, finale of uh, The Mandalorian Season 3. Oh, I'm sorry, The Book of Boba Fett Season 1 um, review uh, <laughs> next week as well. I feel like Discovery is at a really interesting point where we are essentially going to establish by the end of this season whether this show is going to upswing as it re as it uh, you know heads towards its end point, or if we're just going to settle into where we are and just kind of drag it out to the end. My sense is what we're seeing right now in season four. This is Discovery. This is yeah. This is Discovery. But I I want to be proven wrong. I like enough of the characters. It has enough moments that I think are interesting that it's it's not a chore to watch the show. It's just, it's very frustrating to watch the show. That's all. No, it was a chore in season three for me, but not in season four. <laughs> How dare you talk about Sukal that way? This is my <laughs> favorite addition to the, the, the canon of great Star Trek characters. Yes, and of course you can find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam. V is in Viewing Zero's Horrific Light, Smith. And you can find me at Reportin. That's R-E-P. P is in Progeny. Protostar. Prodigy. O-R-T-O-N. <laughs> okay, so the book of Boba Fett, or as you call it, Tyler? <laughs> the book cam of Borton Fett. That's... <laughs> Inside uh, story on that. Back in the day when we were covering The Mandalorian, as we will in the future... On the uh, entries for the episodes in the show notes, I would always refer to it as the Cam DeLorton Report. I have not done that for the Book of Boba Fett because I feel like anyone reading it would have no idea what that says. <laughs> they would think that we're on drugs, like, honestly. Or just, like, it's complete spelling errors. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, I, honestly, the, we are stretching that pun. Uh, we get it, uh, Cam. Um, is it funny that that Boba's just an afterthought in the series with his own name on it. Like, I've never seen this in any television show ever in my life. I was going to ask, because you watch more TV than I do, have you ever seen such an aggressive pivot of a show? <laughs> um. Well, remember when, like, uh, Doggett and Reyes took over from Mulder and Scully? But that, sure. they were, like, kind of, like, easing us into that for a while. Yeah. Yeah, they kept um, Scully around for quite a while and setting up Doggett, and then Reyes came in a little bit later. Like, it felt natural versus <laughs> so long, Fett. <laughs> well, was it just like they, like, okay, four episodes centered on Boba. Um, yeah. It, it felt as if it was stretched really thin, like, in terms of story. And I'm guessing if it's five episodes centered on Boba Fett, um, that, that's stretching it even thinner. So, I it, it's amazing to me. It's like like did they start writing this show, and we're like, you know what? I don't know if we can do like a full six episodes. I thought both in my head, like I thought Boba Fett was supposed to be six episodes long. That that's what I thought I had read in all the trades and all that. And then we're finding out it's like, oh, it's actually gonna be seven episodes, and we're we're discovering it's because 
they're essentially creating like a mini season of the Mandalorian in here. And I, I, I think it's just because they realize there's just not a lot of story to tell here with Boba Fett. Yeah. And I don't know the timing because, um, season one of the Mandalorian did really well and obviously it was popular, but season two felt like it hit the next plateau and the show became something of a phenomenon. And I wonder if, you know, they'd shot the end of, um, the season, which kind of promised the book of Boba Fett and, they didn't realize just how unbelievably popular the Mandalorian would be by the end of season two. And it was like, Oh, we're not that inspired for Fett and the audience clearly wants Mandalorian stuff. So let's just shoehorn it into this show and get what the audience wants back on the screen. Well, people are talking about it way more in the last two weeks than they were in the preceding like three or four weeks. So definitely, I, you know, um, and if we touch on, you know, which is yet another uh, Mando-focused episode, we have him actually spot Grogu, but uh, they, they don't actually encounter each other flesh to flesh. Um, uh, I was watching this with my girlfriend. She was absolutely horrified at Luke saying, you can only choose one or the other, sir. you know, your oh. lightsaber, your armor. <laughs> like, um, it's just brutal, Luke. Maybe that's kind of setting him up for where he ends up in uh, the, the Last Jedi. But um, look, we, we had that weird uncanny valley thing from the uh, Mandalorian season two finale. Um, yeah. And then we saw like, um, there's like amateur VFX artists, they were fixing it and making it look a whole lot better on clips on YouTube. I think they fixed it here. It's just his voice sounded as if uh, it was being called from, I don't know, like some recording booth from like the 1970s or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I thought just visually unbelievable. Like I was expecting heavy seams going off of the end of Mandalorian season two. And it really did work in pretty much every shot. There was, I think, one where I went, oh, that looks a little wobbly. But other than that, really fantastic work. And the voice, eh, I guess it's just the issue. Like, Mark Hamill sounds nothing like young Mark Hamill anymore. His voice is much more, you know, gruff and kind of growly. So I'm sure there's just so much digital work being yeah. put into that voice that it just has that uncanny valley kind of sound to it. I'll take that over how freakish he looked in uh, the season two <laughs> finale. I wonder if maybe they just go back and maybe they, they kind of fix it because he's oh, like, what what he's probably like forty five seconds of screen time with his face like clearly visible. I'm sure it's not going to be that expensive, especially if you look at whatever they're doing now to make him like like it, it felt as if I was looking at Luke from you know uh, Return of the Jedi. You know, I, I was I was absolutely floored by what they're able to accomplish. I could see them going back. I don't remember what it was. Was it a Marvel thing or a Star Wars thing or a Star? I don't think it was Star Trek, where there was something where they did upgrade something and changed it for the streaming version that was online, and some eagle-eyed people spotted it. And it became a bit of a you know short-run news story. I don't remember what it was, oh, but I, they did just make that change. It, it was um, the coffee cup spotted in uh, the Game of Thrones episode. Oh, is that it? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, oh, that's probably what it was. Well, there's another Game of Thrones kind of controversy. Like, they had all these heads on pikes, and you couldn't really tell who these heads were. This is in season one, and then somebody from behind the scenes is like, yeah, that one is a head double of George W. Bush. And mm -hmm. the producers were like, uh, we did not know that. We're not going to have, like, president's heads <laughs> on pikes. Uh, so they went and CGI like altered that. Like if, if you look at it, you, you you can be like, okay, I guess that's George W. Bush, but he's got like a beard and long hair, so it's kind of like, sure. So um, <laughs> yeah, but okay, storytelling wise, like um, Mando and Grogu having 
this attachment to each other that they cannot deny. And it's interesting to see how their relationship is juxtaposed as more that that father-child relationship versus the master-student relationship that we're getting with Luke. And I, I find watching kind of the parallels there, like, far more gripping than anything we've witnessed in Boba Fett put together. And I think there's a really interesting tension in that the, um, you know, Grogu is potentially very dangerous and actually would probably not be well served being with the Mandalorian. But the show, because we're seeing it through the Mandalorian, like we feel the ache of like this character standing and seeing Grogu in the distance. And of course we want the two to reunite. And it's that push and pull of, you know, we have to acknowledge you know what the characters are going through and we want to see these characters reunite but knowing that's not what's in the best interest of grogu um i I, i'm wondering like when we get to the finale is it going to be like a boba centric episode like i have to believe it is they're they're trying to plan like this attack um, one thing that my girlfriend is floating is like, is this just really going to end up with like a cliffhanger for a, another season where this is actually where like uh, this war is going to be waging or is everything going to be resolved by the end of the finale? Well, okay. What do we have to resolve? Because I feel like the Book of Boba Fett has done so little work to <laughs> invest me in what's going on in the uh, current events with this gang war on Tatooine. It's like, okay, well, we've got the Pikes. Um, and the Tuscans. I don't know. They, and the Tuscans. So we've got to pay off this turf war between Fett and the Pikes. Um, I don't know. Is it going to be like just a big battle where the Pikes are conquered and we can just leave Fett sitting on a throne and leave him, you know, far off in the distance? I maybe? hope it's that easy. I, I do. Like, that that would be the, the best case scenario. I just don't want this dragging out into either a season two of Boba Fett or... Uh, a season three of Mando. Like I have no interest in continuing on with this story uh, at all. I, except if we if we got way more moments of that uh, dark gunslinger, um, yeah. which was like one of the most like incredible moments we've had just in like Boba Fett in like um, just in terms of the atmosphere created there, the tension created as well, where you knew the entire time what was going to happen to the deputy. Um, I don't think Cobb Vanth is gone. Like they, they made it very apparent the deputy uh, was killed there. But as long as they're not explicitly saying that Cobb is a goner, then I've got to believe that it was just a shoulder shot there. But um, yeah, even just the look at that gunslinger was just incredible to see here. And I wish, I don't know, can I even praise a series like Boba Fett when it seems as if this was actually still just an episode of Mando and Cobb was a character first introduced in Mando as well? I mean, it was a pretty riveting hour of television. So whatever it was, I thought it was fantastic. And it is Favreau and Dave Filoni, I believe, directed this one and co-wrote it. And it's just like, they may not quite know what they're doing with Fett, but when they really lock down on Star Wars storytelling, they're doing it incredibly well. And yeah, that gunslinger character, Cad Bane, is actually a character from the animated shows that Dave Filoni was overseeing. So this was his live-action debut. But... I mean, the design may have been created elsewhere, but just in terms of a live-action character, unbelievable work. Uh, speaking of which, um, I, I remember when Ashoka Khan was introduced in Mando Season 2, and I, I said that they're going to have to do a little bit of work on translating her from animation form to live-action form, where it looks a little silly. I think there was some work done, but I, she still looks rather silly in live-action. 
To be fair, that species shows up in other Star Wars movies, and they kind of always look silly. <laughs> so is it? But can, can she work as like a main character if she's always looking like it's just? I'm saying like kind of the uh, tentacles that like the the very obvious yeah. like rubber tentacles off her head, and also just like the um the bright color of her skin contrasting with the white facial marks on there. It just it looks like I'm looking at like some sort of animation rather than something in live action. Yeah, that is a species I think always worked better in animation than live because there's members of them in um, the prequels as well. Um, they always look kind of silly, but it's kind of like, I guess that silliness is just kind of accepted as the norm because of those movies. So that's probably just going to be what we get going forward. But I did think um, that, you know, just what they did with that character in this episode was really good. I kind of like the serene vibe they gave her. And I am genuinely interested to see what they do with her show. I would far rather be watching Rosario Dawson's show than the Book of Boba Fett. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> so, um, yeah, overall, uh, look, I, I, after two episodes of this mini season of Mando, I guess I'm excited for the finale of Boba Fett, which if you asked me three weeks ago, that would not have been the case. So, I don't know, fingers crossed that we can resolve things in a way that is satisfying and it's not going to be some sort of cliffhanger thing. I, I I don't care about this Pike gang war at all. No. I, so, no. I don't know. I do wonder, I, I seem to recall there was a um, Tatooine-based Star Wars movie in development that never got a director or anything. It never um, really was going to come to fruition. Um, but we've created these characters like Cobb Vanth and, um, you know, Carl Weathers' character. And it's like... I know that you've said, like, Tatooine's the most overexplored place on Star Wars. Let's move beyond it. But I wonder if you've created this kind of deep bank of characters. A Boba Fett show, like, drop it. We don't need any more seasons of Boba Fett. But, like, I wonder if it would be interesting to have a show that kind of was set on Tatooine where we could bounce between some of these other characters. Like, I don't know if Jennifer Beale's character died in this episode. We'll find out, I guess, next week. But, like, that's another, you know, accomplished actress who could maybe do more with a character so maybe there's something there like more of an anthology show or one where it's kind of bouncing between these different participants on this planet okay well as long as that drum playing droid made it out of the explosion <laughs> then i'll be a ha happy camper that, that's all there is to say definitely definitely so i'm excited to see the finale of this show which is not something i would have said after episodes three and four of this show but uh Shows what happens when you inject things people like into your otherwise very shaky show. <laughs> yeah, I I just have to say, I look if the only good episodes are the ones that aren't about your titular character, then I think you have to say that this show is kind of a failure, despite the fact that we get two great adventures that have absolutely nothing to do with the main thrust of the series. Did Boba Fett have a line in this episode? He had one line. He did it. He did speak. Okay, I knew yeah, that. Ming, you know, the uh, Ming Na Wen character did speak a couple times, but I couldn't remember if he did. Yeah, like we, we saw him. I think for a total of maybe forty-five seconds. Yeah. In the palace, as they're planning for this like attack, I guess. Like. Uh, and I also took note too that when it did cut to that sequence, it did not shift points of view. To Boba Fett's perspective or Shan's perspective yeah. on these events, it stayed more omniscient. It didn't even really filter it through Mandalorian. It was just like we are not even shifting the focus back to our you know main character. We are just 
standing back, holding him at a you know arm's length. Very strange. Yeah. Well, we can be the far final arbiters of uh, the success of this series in about one week's time. But uh, for anyone out there that wants to support the podcast, it's free. Uh, give us five stars on whatever podcatcher you are listening to. Uh, leave us a review because that actually helps even better with the algorithm. It allows more people to find us. And like I said, this is a free show. Just uh, give us that and uh, we won't start doing um, uh, ads for like me undies or, uh, or DraftKings or stuff like that. You know, no one wants to hear that. <laughs> Uh, Cam, uh, on your other podcast, what was the, um, uh, advertisements, uh, that, that you were doing there? Uh, one in particular. Manscaped. Yeah. You did get like, didn't you get like a free shirt or something out of that? No, no, I got more than that. They sent okay. me like a, a box of everything. <laughs> I don't want to know any more details. <laughs> Got to protect those 007s, right? That's right. That's right. So, yeah. Okay. So until next time, the arena is closed. Transfer complete.